Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So here we are, the first Sunday, not just of a new year, but of a new decade. And it seems to me that all of the hype that always circulates around the new year was kind of on steroids this year. So the usual year-end best-of lists, you know, best books, best movies, they were best-of-decade lists. My social media feeds were full of people naming the highlights not just of the last year, but of the last 10 years. And then there are all the New Year's resolutions, along with all of the ads and articles that go with them. So a new year, a new you, they promise telling you how to get fit, eat better, earn more, work less. There's something about this turning of the calendar year that makes us think about change. In fact, this desire for change seems to be a common human experience. We want things to be different. We want to be different. Unfortunately, that is a human desire that is all too easy to exploit. So companies will tell us that there is something wrong with our lives. They create a sense of discontentment in us, just so they can sell us the product that will supposedly change it. They tell us our skin is too wrinkly, or our waistline too big, our phone too old, our 401k too small, And they just happen to have the thing that will make it better. And then there's social media, an entire realm that seems to exploit our desire for change and that feeds off this manufactured discontent with our lives. We're constantly presented with images of other people's lives with a not at all subtle message that we'd better at least keep up, if not do better than, those others that we see. And so this desire to change morphs into a desire to be better than, and the destructive consequences of that for our relationships and for our society as a whole are very real. But I believe that that human desire for change, for transformation, that desire that is so easily exploited, and I believe that that desire has its roots in something actually really good. I believe it is God-given. Because I believe God wants us to experience transformation. I believe God longs for us to be changed, to be, to become who God made us to be. In Paul's words, to be conformed to the image of Christ. This kind of change, this kind of transformation, is what theologians like to call sanctification. But where we as Christians often run into trouble is that we take that God-given longing for transformation, for sanctification, and we try to accomplish it in the way that the world around us tells us that change happens. By working harder, by being better, 
by doing more. Praying more, reading the Bible more, going to church more. We take that God-given longing for transformation, and then we act like it's up to us to make it happen. And just in case you haven't noticed, it doesn't work. Eventually, the willpower wanes, the self-discipline runs out, we find ourselves preferring the snooze button to a morning quiet time, and we begin to wonder whether this transformation is really even possible, whether we really can ever be more of who God wants us to be. The problem is that real spiritual transformation is a whole different ballgame from what the world teaches us that transformation looks like. And so experiencing real spiritual transformation requires that we unlearn most of what we think we know about how change happens. And that is a hard thing to do. But it is so very important. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks, this first month or so of our new decade, talking about spiritual transformation. What it looks like. How it actually happens. And how it is so far from being just another self-help strategy or a New Year's resolution in disguise. As Christians, real spiritual transformation is possible because it's not up to us to make it happen. It is God who does the transforming. And friends, that is good news. So today, we're going to start at the very beginning. I am convinced of this fact. That spiritual transformation starts with accepting that love, God's love, is the basis for our transformation and not its reward. We don't earn God's love by changing. We change by receiving God's love. We don't earn God's love by changing. We change by receiving God's love. That's the point that Paul is so emphatically trying to make in the passage that we read from Romans this morning. It's what he's saying when he writes these words that many of us know that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a tremendously powerful passage, and I think it's easy to lose sight of just how powerful it is. Because it is full of words, big words like faith and justification and sin and reconciliation that can sound a little bit like theological jargon. And it's when we come to passages like this that I often find it's really helpful to turn to other renditions of the Bible. Things like the message, which is not a direct translation but it tries to render the ideas of the text into our common patterns of speech. And I think the message does a great job with that in this passage. So I'm going to read it to you. The beginning of Romans 5, 
in the message version. By entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, set us right with him, make us fit for him, we have it all together with God because of our master, Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. And there's more to come. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us and how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this, we're never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary, we can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. Now that we are set right with God by means of this sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there's no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. If if when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of his resurrection life. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus, the Messiah. What Paul is doing in this passage is describing what Christian spiritual transformation looks like, what it means and how it happens. In the first few verses, Paul paints a beautiful picture of a transformed life. He says it's like finding ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory. A transformed life is a life where we know that we are safe and we are free and we can revel in God's grace. A transformed life is a life that is standing where we always hoped we might stand. Living the life we always hoped we might live, that's what a spiritually transformed life looks like. And what more could we want? 
But we can't miss how Paul prefaces that description. He says, we throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. That place that we always hoped that we might stand, we don't have to get there on our own. As soon as we open ourselves up to God, that is the moment that we see God has opened his door to us. God has done the work of placing us where we always wanted to be. And that means that we have been standing in the wide open spaces of God's grace for far longer than we ever realized. We have always been standing in the wide open spaces of God's grace. We just haven't realized and received it. But once we do, once we recognize and accept that God has placed us in those wide open spaces of his grace and glory, that's when we experience the kind of spiritual transformation that Paul describes in verses 3 through 5. In this case, he's talking specifically about the transformation that God can work in us through our experience of suffering. But the same point holds for all different kinds of transformation. The end result is the same. We're never left feeling shortchanged, Paul says. In fact, the opposite, we can't round up enough containers to hold everything that God so generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. When we experience the work of spiritual transformation, what we end up with is a life of abundance, of overflow. The transformed life is overflowing with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wants to make it really, really, really clear that that transformation doesn't happen once we've deserved it. God doesn't transform us once we have earned his love. God loves us, and so he transforms us. That's what Jesus' life and death and resurrection show us. And in this passage, Paul is focusing particularly on the way that Jesus' death shows us that. Paul writes that Jesus presented himself for his sacrificial death when we were too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. God put his love on the line for us by offering his son while we were of no use whatsoever to him. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't wait for us to be of use to him or to get ourselves ready. God doesn't wait for us to transform ourselves because he knows he would be waiting forever. We just can't do it. And God knows that, and God doesn't mind. Because that is the nature of God's love. It has no expectations that its recipients will be worthy of its love. God just loves because God is love. 
This is tremendous news. But so often, I think we're afraid to accept that it's true. To accept that the truest thing about us is that we are loved exactly as we are. I think, in part, that's because deep down we know that if we accept that God loves us just as we are, then we also have to acknowledge that God loves everyone else just as they are. And by our account, there are some pretty messed up people out there doing some pretty messed up things. And, you know, we kind of look at ourselves as people who could use a little tune-up, a little improvement here and there. Those people, they need a complete overhaul. That's what it seems like to us. It can be hard for us to hold at the same time that God loves us and everyone else, just as we are, and that not all of our actions and behaviors are what God desires for us. We wonder how we can say that God loves us, that God even likes us, without also saying that God approves of everything that we do. It can feel like we are being soft on sin, that it doesn't matter how anybody lives because God loves us all. But actually, the total opposite is what is true. It is only as we experience ourselves to be fully loved exactly as we are that we can really open our hearts to God's transforming touch. That we can receive that overflow of the spirit that Paul talks about. The more we experience God's love, the more we will love God in return. And that means that we will desire more the things of God and to live in ways that reflect God's character. One of the things that is challenging about spiritual transformation is that it doesn't happen by learning about it. We have to experience it. And if spiritual transformation begins with accepting God's love for us, then we need to have an experience of that love in a personal way. So I want to invite us this morning to spend some time in prayer here, now, together, asking God to help us experience his love. This time of prayer is not going to be so much about us talking to God as it is going to be us listening for him. And most of the time, hearing God's voice is something that we have to learn how to do. It takes practice. And we can't command God to speak to us just because we show up and ask. But my experience is that the problem is more often that I'm not listening than it is that God isn't speaking. So we are going to get quiet. We are going to listen. And that takes a little time. So we're going to give it about four minutes, which is probably going to feel like an eternity, and that is okay. And as you sit in silence, at first, a lot of thoughts are probably going to come to your mind. You're going to start building your grocery list. You're going to think about last night's football game, whatever it is. Don't try to block out those thoughts. Just notice them and then sort of let them go. And pay attention to what is happening in your mind, in your imagination, in your emotions. 
Sometimes a word or a phrase will come to mind, and it's something you're pretty sure you didn't think of. It just kind of popped in there. Maybe you'll have an image come to mind. And it might not seem at first like it has anything to do with God's love, but I want you to sit with it for a little while and see if any connections emerge. You might feel some emotion rising up in you. And if so, notice it and feel it. God speaks to us through all of these ways and many more. And if we have asked God to speak, and if we are listening, then the chances are better than not that whatever we hear actually is from God, because God's Spirit lives in us. So one more thing before we pray. Here are the stars. You each got a star when you came in. Tomorrow is Epiphany, when we celebrate the wise men coming to see Jesus. And like the star that guided the wise men, it is God's love that guides and draws us to him and transforms us. So if you would like to, you don't have to, but if you want, you might want to write on your star whatever God speaks to you in prayer about his love for you. And then you can keep that star for the day or the week or the month or the year as a reminder of what he has said. So now, get as comfortable as you can get in a hard wooden pew. Settle into your seat. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath in. And release it. Take another deep breath in. And release it. And with each breath you take, Imagine yourself being drawn into God's love for you. And with every breath out, let go of critical and negative thoughts. With each breath, God draws you deeper into his presence. So rest in that presence. Rest in God's love. And listen for whatever God might say to you about his love for you.
I invite you out of this time of prayer. It may be that you don't feel like you heard anything, and that's okay. God doesn't love you anymore if he gives you miraculous visions or if he stays silent. But he loves when we show up to be with him. And so I will close with these words from Brennan Manning in his book, The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. God loves you as you are and not as you should be. God loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. He loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain. He loves you without caution, regret, boundary, limit, or breaking point. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.